1517. You all know what happened on that day? Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, in defense of grace. You can say that he investigated the anatomy of grace and decided that he was not happy with cheap grace. In September the 26th, 1858, a British physician by the name of Henry Gray wrote a textbook. In this textbook, you'll see a picture of it on the screen, is was called Anatomy, Descriptive and Surgical. The book is now in its 40th edition and is commonly known as Gray's Anatomy. Maybe some of you have seen that book. Well, March 27, 2005, we're getting a little bit closer, ABC launched a new medical drama on television called Gray's Anatomy. The interesting thing is that Gray's Anatomy, the book was G-R-A-Y, apostrophe S, and Gray's Anatomy on television is G-R-E-Y, apostrophe S, because it's a show about a young woman named Meredith Gray, and it's not like the book, it's anything but a boring television show, and many of you probably watch it on a regular basis. Well, we've gone from October 31st, 1517 to September 26th, 1858, March 27th, 2005. We need to jump forward to October 31st in 2010 when we begin a brand new message series called Grace Anatomy. It also is a little bit of a play on words. But for these next several weeks, about four of them all together, uh, we're going to take a detailed look at the doctrine of grace, and I hope that this series is less like a textbook and more like an exciting, action-packed, real-life drama. Now, I haven't gotten you up to 2010. I want to take you back 50 years again to a conference that was held at Cambridge University in England. It was a conference on comparative religions and theology. A whole bunch of very smart intellectual theologians got together to explore a wide variety of religious ideas. One idea that they were exploring was this. What belief or doctrine is unique to the Christian faith? And I'll say that again. What belief or doctrine is unique to the Christian faith? They de decided to do that because, quite honestly, almost every religion in the world has some creation story. A lot of them actually have a heaven story. Uh, a lot of religions in the world have good versus bad. But what is it about the Christian faith that is most unique, different than all other beliefs in this world? Well, as the discussion was taking place, a man by the name of C.S. Lewis, and many of you are familiar with him, a great Christian writer, the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, all of those kinds of things happened into the room, and somebody said to him, we're discussing Christianity's unique contribution among the world religions. And C.S. Lewis stopped for a moment and said, Oh, that's easy. It's grace. And he walked out. Now, after some discussion, the conference agreed with C.S. Lewis. They, they said, Grace is it. Christianity is the only religion in the entire world where God's love is offered to us absolutely free and where God's mercy is available to everyone, even the most 
undeserving. I hope you caught that before when Christabel was talking about it, when she's talking about dealing with some people that a country feel are the least deserving of all people. But yet God's grace and his mercy comes to them as well. See, the truth is, however, there are many people today that are very, very uncomfortable with grace. These people say, well, you can't make salvation or forgiveness too easy. Otherwise, people will run wild. They'll just go do whatever they want to if it's too easy to get forgiven or too easy to be saved. There are also some, and this has been going on for centuries, who give the impression that God's mercy is somehow limited, that his love is conditional, and that forgiveness is something you receive only when you earn it, only when you prove yourself. Now, I would tell you that today, in 2010, most people outside the church, and I would say many people, way too many people inside the churches, think that Christianity is about following a set number of rules and regulations. You know, like if I show up so many Sundays of a church year, if I give so much money to the church, if I become a tither, if I go to women's Bible studies, if I go to the youth group, if I show up at the potluck, if I hold an office in church for 400 years or whatever, they think that you're a Christian if you do this and and, and you don't do that. Well, I got some good news for you this morning. The good news is... Uh, that, you know, the good news is that uh, you're not going to get to heaven on that. You're going to get to heaven purely on the grace and love and mercy of Jesus. Now, if Christianity were about following a list of do's and don'ts, there's not a single person here this morning that would get on the list into heaven. And yet people continue to think that Christianity somehow is primarily about keeping rules. And because of that, I think grace is one of the church's best-kept secrets. For some goofy reason, we seem to perpetuate the myth that we have to earn our way into heaven somehow. And if we can't do it completely, we've got to be able to help God some way. But that's wrong. That's why I say, honest to goodness, grace is often the best-kept secret in the church. So let me ask the question, what is grace? Well, in order to explain that, I'm going to take you back again a few years to a movie. Anybody ever remember seeing the Superman movies? Ever seen those? I don't know if you remember Superman 2. This is going to challenge. I don't know how long ago this was, maybe 20 years ago. Superman 2, there was a scene in there that I remember when I watched this movie, to me, exemplified what grace was all about. In this movie, Superman and Lois Lane fall in love. In fact, they fall head over heels in love to the point where they want to get married. But in order for them to get married, you know, Superman and Lois Lane or Clark Kent, he has to give up his superpowers. So he chooses to to give up all of his superpowers in order to marry her. And he's warned in advance that if he gives up his superpowers, he can never, ever get them back. But you know what true love is like, don't you? Even Superman succumbed. He chooses to become ordinary Clark Kent. And suddenly all of his superpowers are gone. But do you remember in the movie? Suddenly, three supervillains show up from his home planet of Krypton. 
and they take control of the White House, and they establish themselves as rulers of the entire world. Now, more than ever, the world needs Superman. But guess what? It's too late. Well, the scene shifts to a, a rather dejected Clark Kent, who's shown hiking through a blizzard, a raging blizzard, going back to Superman's portrait of solitude, which is now in ruins. And as Clark walks through the rubble, he shouts out these words, Father, I have failed. It's interesting. Father, I have failed. Sounds like a confession of sins, doesn't it? Well, all of a sudden, this is the way movies work, suddenly the, ch the scene changes back to Metropolis, the capital city, and the supervillains are just wreaking havoc and terrorizing townspeople, and then all of a sudden, the music starts. And suddenly, everybody says, up in the sky, is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it's Superman. Now, somehow, some way, he regained his superpowers, and he is back. Now, I don't think I'm spoiling the movie. The movie is so old when I say that the story ends with Superman defeating the villains and winning the fight for truth, justice, and the American way, as he stands with that flag fluttering behind him. Now, the writers of this movie had put themselves into a little bit of a bind. They established a rule that said if Superman surrenders his superpowers, he can never, ever get them back. And then he surrendered his superpowers. Now, if they had stuck by that rule, the movie would have ended there. <laughs> Boring movie. But the writers changed the rules, if you will, in the middle of the stream in order to get Superman off the hook. Now, I've told you all of that in order to tell you this. In another sense, in the Old Testament part of our Bible, the Old Testament teaches a way of righteousness that no one could ever, ever achieve. For example, in the prophet Micah, chapter 6, verse 8, it says, He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly before, or humbly with your God. Now let me ask you, friends, are you always fair? Are you always humble? Are you always obedient? Are you always merciful? Do you always act justly? Do you always love mercy? The answer is no. None of us are. Because as Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the Old Testament puts us in an extremely difficult position. It shows us the way to achieve righteousness, and it warns of dire consequences for those who don't measure up, and we find that we can't do it. So what does God do? He sort of changes the rules in the middle of the story, just like that Superman movie. Why does he do that? To let us get off the hook. Now, the story of the prodigal son, which Jimmy read a little while ago, exemplifies this. If you think back to that story, the father kind of changes the rules in the middle of the story in order to give that prodigal son a chance to come back home, a chance to be his son again. This is what grace is. 
I mean, grace rewrites the story in order to give us a second chance, or I think on the one thing that I have a fill on the blank in your message this week, here it is. Grace is God making a way to get you off the hook. I was almost going to say at the beginning, compared to last week's seven-point sermon, this sermon is almost pointless. But I'm not going to say that. That's a pretty strong point there, isn't it, though? Grace is God making a way to get us off the hook, or he provides a way out, an exit. Now, some people hear this again, and they say, can it really be? It sounds too good. Will God really forgive me? Uh, Will God really wipe away all my past sins? Will he really give me a fresh start and a new life? Is it really possible that God can do this? Now, other people say, oh, that's irresponsible. You can't offer people forgiveness and mercy. They'll take advantage of it. Religion ought to be all about reaping and sowing. Now, like I said before, there are many people who believe that our acceptance by God is determined by a set of scales, that we have a set of scales in our life, and at the end, God's going to look at it. He's going to look at our good deeds, and he's going to look at our bad deeds, and somehow if our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds, God's going to say, y'all, come on in. But I got news for you, friends. There's no scales at the end end of time. I don't know where anybody ever got that goofy idea. That's not how it works. And it's a good thing because I have never, ever in my short life ever met anyone whose good deeds outweighed their bad deeds. Quite honestly, you do one bad deed, it just outweighs everything. It separates you from God. Now, some of you might be thinking, hold it, Pastor. I I want to challenge you on that. There are people who do more good than bad. In fact, I know a whole bunch of religious people who are really, really, really good. In fact, some of you might actually think you're one of them. And to that, I just have to say, ha, 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 ha. Wrong self-righteousness breath. You are not perfect. I know you. I know where you live. I've seen you. Let's go back to the prodigal son again. After he comes home, he gets a welcome back party from his father. And you may remember that Jesus told us about the other brother. You know, when Jimmy was reading this, I had to underline one phrase in this scripture reading. It just really jumped out at me. It was the little phrase that said, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. (laughs) There's a real shift in the story. The older brother represents what some people would call ungrace. He kind of represents the idea of religion based upon principles of accounting, that you get what you deserve. He, now, if you heard the story, he actually claimed to be very faithful, very righteous. He always did what he was supposed to do, it said. Never did I do any of that stuff like him. But I got to tell you again, the truth is I've never met anybody who's remained faithful and righteous on their own. That's because that kind of person does not exist. Isaiah 53 said, we are all like sheep. It doesn't say a few of us. It says all of us like sheep have done what? Gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Or like you see Romans 3.12, there's no one who does good, not even one. See, at at one time or another, friends, every last one of us here this morning has been a prodigal. 
At one time or another in our life, we have all left home and we have all wandered off into the land of sinful living. And if I were really honest, which I generally am with you, some of you are still living there. You're still living in the land of sin. But I've got good news for you too today, friends. You can come home. And when you do, uh, here's what I want you to remember about grace. Many of you think that when you come back to God, let's say you've gone off and you've done your sinful living in the far-off country like this guy, you've got this past behind you. Many of you think that when you come back to God, he's going to have the same attitude as that older brother. That God is going to look at you and say, well, look who decided to show his face in town. Or, well, look who decided to show up at First Lutheran today. I can't believe you have the nerve to show your face here. Do you have any idea how much pain you caused me? Do you realize what a mess you've made of your life? You don't deserve to be here. I'm ashamed I even know you. That's what a lot of people think Jesus is going to say to them. I've got to tell you, that's what the older brother would have said. And sad to say, there are a few Christians every once in a while who become the older brother. And that's why some people who've walked out of this church over the years may have not chosen to come back because an older brother has kind of indicated how dare you show your face back here. That doesn't happen just at First Lutheran and Texarkana. It happens at Lord of Life and Trinity and Emmanuel and St. John the Baptist and First Assembly. It happens all over the place. But I want you to know, friends, that's not what the Father ever says. In fact, because of the corruption of religion, this is, this is why many prodigals fail to come home. They, they've, because they've forgotten their own history and they identify now more with the, with the older brother. But I want you to know that that is not what the Father says when you choose to come back to him. When you leave the land of the sinful and you come back home to God, do you know what happens? While you're still a long way off, I hope you notice it. It says while you're still a long way off, the Father saw him. I mean, the father was doing the looking, and he ran out to get him. He cuts his son off because he's not going to let his son get into that work righteousness stuff. Oh, father, let me come back home, and I'll do this and this and this, and I'll be back. He just said, I don't want to listen to that. Let me tell you what I'm going to do for you. Put the ring on his finger, the robe on his back, you know, barbecue the big steer, all that kind of stuff. See, he knows what you've done. He knows how much of your life you wasted. And the Bible still says he has compassion on you. When he sees you in the distance, he runs to you, he throws his arms around you, and he greets you with a kiss. And as you stand before him in, in the rags that your life has become, he then, what, offers you the best robe to wear. He gives you the, key, the ring for your fingers, shoes for your feet, and puts a big feast out on the table because God the Father, and by the way, that's God your Father, wants to celebrate that you've come back home. And from here on out, every day with your father will be just like that. Now the question is, do you deserve that? Absolutely not. I know some prodigals that are sitting here today that wandered off at one point. I've heard some of their testimonies already. 
Did they deserve to be back in God's house? No. I've wandered away at times in my life. Do I deserve to be back? No. But guess what? That's what grace is all about. God has given you something that you absolutely, positively do not deserve. Now, today's message is a little bit different. I I saved my points for last. Actually, I gave you one before, but I have a few more. In closing, I just want you to understand again about grace in this first message of the series. The point is not that some of us are like the younger son and some of us are like the older son. The point is that we are all like the younger son. The point is we've all gone astray. The point is sin has separated us from God. The point is we've all squandered our heavenly inheritance on selfish, sinful living. And finally, the point is, if you haven't yet, it's time to come home. I thought about that last night. I was watching the Rangers game, and if you know one of their themes, I see the sign It says, it's time. You've seen those signs? When you watch the game tonight, friends, I know what they're saying. It's finally the Rangers' time after 50 years. I know what they're saying. But maybe tonight when you look at the game and you're looking for me, and I'll wave, and you won't know I'm there. But when you see that sign that says, it's time, maybe in the back of your mind you'll say, I remember that. Pastor Cole talked about that this morning, that when sin separates you from God, it's time to come back home. Now, you may have lost everything. You may feel that your life is a wreck. Your sins might have been public, your sins might have been private, but either way, they have the power to rob you of life and destroy your soul and to leave you wallowing in the mud. But no matter what your sins may have been, friends, you can come back home and you can start over. See, this parable that we had today is a reminder that when you turn to God, the Father is the one waiting for you, not the older brother. And this, unfortunately is one of the best-kept secrets in the church. This is the message that we have not yet successfully communicated with those outside the church, and sadly, maybe we have not really communicated this message of grace well enough inside the church as well. See, our Father in heaven is nothing like the older brother. God is not standing there with his arms crossed across his chest like that in disapproval, you know, as you come making your way back to him. I mean, God doesn't reluctantly let you back in and go, oh, well, if you're going to promise to be good. No, God doesn't do that. God's always got a smile on his face and welcomes you home with joy. And here's the best part. The ring, the robe, the fatted calf, the big heavenly hug, you know, the warm embraces from a loving father, that's the way it can be each and every day of your life. I mean, those days that you spent with the pigs, you can forget about them. And guess what? God has forgotten about him too. Isaiah, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. See, your relationship with your Father in heaven, friends, because of Jesus, will always be a relationship of undeserved mercy. It will always be that you've been given more than you could ever possibly pay back. You will never, ever be able to balance out the scales. And it's crucial to remember that every time you stumble, and guess what, you will, and every time that you fall, and you will, the same loving Father is there, as always, to pick you up. 
He will never, ever become the older brother, and neither should you. Your relationship with your father is always based on grace. You don't have to waste another day in the pig pen. God's waiting for us to come home. And no matter how bleak your story has become, God always has the power and the desire to change how your story ends. May God grant that for his son's sake. Amen.